Well, welcome again. Welcome in the room. Welcome at home. Just a particular welcome today, as Amy said, if you're new here, and if you are a student here, if this is new home for you, and not just Trinity, but Nottingham, um, well done. You've arrived at the greatest city in the world, in history. Yes. Yeah, don't believe what those Londoners tell you. All lies. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is home, and uh, we love it. We love this city, and we just love uh, the opportunity to welcome you if you're new here. I believe we have, uh, we have, as Amy said, gift bags for those who are new. We also have student uh, particular gift bags. I don't know what they would include, but anyway, uh, they're there for you, and please let us know as you leave. And Sam, uh, I think, is here somewhere. Sam's at the back over there, and do look around if you're a student. He'd love to welcome you, but we'd love to welcome you to the family here. And this is a family, and I want to speak about that a bit this morning. Last week, if you remember, we looked at um, our vision as a church and particularly our priorities in this season going forward. And I, I said that, you know, we need in these days to anchor ourselves as sort of sands are shifting and things are uncertain. We need to anchor ourselves more particularly, more clearly than ever in the thing, uh, which isn't a thing, who never changes, God himself. And we said that particularly there were three priorities we wanted to follow as a church that we wanted to anchor into devotion, connection, and compassion. And I promised you, I said, we're not going to be harping on about this week after week. We're not going to indulge ourselves in five-week sermon series. In fact, this will be the only week that we uh, focus in on this vision and this direction. And in saying that, I lied. I lied. I said we wouldn't return to it. But this week in prayer, I opened my Bible and came upon Acts 2, 42 to 47, the scripture that Miles has so beautifully just read to us. And I thought, I, I would be doing them an injustice. No, I would be sinning if we didn't look at this scripture together because what we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47, and actually in an echo just a couple of chapters later in Acts 4, is the most beautiful picture of what it means to be the family of God. And the language itself speaks into our vision. And I thought, if nothing else, they'll know Amy and I weren't making it up from our own heads that it did in fact come from the Bible. So what I want to do today is look at this early church community, the earliest church community on record, just days after Pentecost, and ask what we can learn from their shared life together. And my hope is that in looking at this scripture together, uh, we'll be inspired. The Spirit of God will be breathed into us in a, in, a way, in a way that he just has been in worship, breathed into us to give us new life and passion and, and vigor to live this out together, but also that we'll be challenged that as we read these words, we'll be confronted by the beauty, the simplicity, and the power of the worshiping life of the early church. So what are some of the things that characterize this early, com uh, this early community? It will not surprise you to know that there are three. <laughs> and the first of those is total devotion. Total, yes, total devotion. Devotion, church, there's a ban on singing. There is a, not a ban on amening. Yeah, come on. Let's raise the Pentecostal spirit in the room. Can I get an amen? Yes, come on. 
they devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They devoted themselves. The word there, for those of you who care in Greek, is proskarterio. It means to be earnest. I only say the Greek stuff so you know I've been working in the week. I've not just been on the golf course. It means to be earnest towards. Don't you love that word? To be earnest towards. To persevere. To be constantly diligent. To attend, I love this word, assiduously. All the exercises, that's the dictionary, folks. Here's a a dumbed-down version from the dictionary of Johnny Hughes. To be all in. To be all in. To be devoted is to be all in. Now, I don't think I was alone over the beginning of lockdown. He's pacing the cage now. He's feeling comfortable. I don't think I was alone at the beginning of lockdown. I don't know if the camera can catch me over there. I'll I'll stay here. Um, In enjoying a little bit, just a little bit on the side of Netflix. Anybody else go there? Anybody else see The Last Dance, the documentary about uh, Michael Jordan and his Chicago Bulls? Now, it was an incredible piece of television if you haven't seen it. Jordan, for those that don't know, is the best basketballer in history. He is potentially, undoubtedly, the best basketballer in history. He is potentially one of the greatest sportsmen of all time. What came through in the documentary so clearly was the level of commitment and devotion required to attain that level, that exalted level, but also then to stay there. That performance level was just incredible. And one of the key things that was mentioned was his mentality. Listen to this. This is from his own mouth. My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. If you don't want to live that regimented mentality, then you don't need to be alongside me. Jordan made it incredibly difficult for people to stick with him if they weren't fully in, fully committed. His devotion made others feel uncomfortable. Sometimes he confronted them powerfully, or sometimes violently. Now, Jordan was a difficult person to be around. His very presence raised others' level. That was why a team, the team around him was so great. But if he was anything, he was devoted to his goal. He's a picture of devotion. Why was he so devoted? What was it in him that facilitated this devotion? Well, here's what. He'd seen something. He'd seen the, the simple, the fundamental beauty of throwing a ball through a hoop. He loved it. He loved going into work every day and doing that. He was consumed by the simple beauty of that task. And his goal was winning basketball games. He was captured by the beauty. And listen to this. He saw what was possible if. He saw what was possible if. If he would give his whole life. If he would give his whole self to this. He saw what would be possible And what was possible was a team winning the championship six times, three times in a row, the three-peat. Never since, as far as I'm aware, and I'm not really aware, repeated. It may have been now. How much more should we, the church of Christ, be devoted in that way to our goal, which is not winning basketball championships, but becoming followers in all of our lives, of Jesus, of modeling our lives fully on him, of living lives drenched in his presence, 
soaked in his spirit so that we would become living signs to the world that there is a God and his name is Jesus. And his attitude and his posture eternally toward his creation is love, redemptive, suffering love. And that devotion is born in us as we see something. Not the beauty of a ball going through a hoop, but the beauty of a man on a cross and raised to life on the third day. It becomes, devotion begins with seeing, simply seeing. And the appearance of the risen Jesus in the lives of these early disciples makes a profound difference in the quality of their devotion. And the gift of the Holy Spirit around them and in them leads them to a place of total buy-in. It wasn't that they saw their lives, as, their, their lives with God, their Christian lives, as the bit that they filled in around their already busy tasks. No, they filled in the other tasks, things like sleeping and eating, around their devotion to Christ. We need to recapture such a vision of life today. And it begins with a new vision. And I simply want to say to you today, can you ask for that? Would you ask for that? Would you ask him today to refresh your devotion by giving you a new vision? Say, Lord, open my eyes. Give me the same. Dare I believe that you could do in me what you did in Michael Jordan, only not in basketball. Because <laughs> honest folks, it's not going to happen in basketball for you. If it hasn't happened now, it ain't going to happen now. But it can happen in faith. Do you believe that? It can. What he did among them, he can do among us. Secondly, we see in this text, not just total devotion, but deep connection. Listen to this. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then later on in verse 46, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And it goes on. What we see here is a powerful pattern of community life. Not sort of a, a monthly meeting, joining a hub when they felt like it. What we see is devotion to fellowship. They ate together regularly. Now, this was common in this day and age. Table fellowship denoted intimacy, and it would be a regular thing. Most special groups, most interest groups met together regularly. But in Greek society, it would be common to do that monthly. What we see here is a community going above and beyond. Meeting daily. Now, late, later on, maybe they ran out of steam. It was modified to weekly, but even that was above and beyond what happened around them. Why did they do it? What was the source of this deep connection? Well, it came from this devotion. But if you ask one of those disciples, what is it you're doing and why are you doing it? They would simply have said, love makes us do it. We love being together. We love sharing food together. It wasn't just some social club. Look what they did. They, they prayed together. They prayed together. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Oh, it was a life soaked in prayer and worship. It was focused on God. That was why it was sustainable. If it hadn't been focused on God, it wouldn't have been sustainable. They'd have got bored of each other. Love made them do it. They pray together. Don't you love that phrase, you know, that proverb, a family that prays together? 
stays together. Thank you for whispering it from behind your masks. A family that prays together stays together. You know, just twice recently, I've been on walks with people in our congregation. I love doing that. It's socially distant, so you can do it anywhere at any time, but I also just love having conversations with people on the move, and I've done that with two chaps in our congregation recently, and at the end of both of those conversations, I've realized I've forgotten to pray, and then I've realized, you're a pastor. That's your job. That's literally your job. Your job is literally to teach people to pray. That's the only thing you're supposed to be doing, and you forgot to pray. So the first time, I picked up the phone. This this chat was too far gone. I picked up the phone. I called him. He didn't answer. I left a voicemail praying for him on on his phone. Shameful that I waited that long, but I did. I thought, I've got to pray. Second time, I caught the guy just as he was about to leave in the car. He said, wind down your window. I just prayed for him. What about if we said every time any of us is together... Or you're together with a Christian from another fellowship, another uh, community. We said, you know, well, let's just take the opportunity just to say a word of prayer. Let's just point our fellowship. Just for a moment, can we just recognize that we're in the presence of somebody who's greater? Uh, there's somebody because of whom that somebody, he's the reason we're here. Let's just mention that. Let's just recognize that for a second. I believe if we did that simple practice whenever we gathered together, even for 10 seconds, the life, the, the, the community life in and amongst us in our city would be changed. I believe that simple practice could be transformative. Craig Keener, this one scholar, says this. Early Christian fellowship undoubtedly centered more on intimate worship, sharing and learning the scriptures than its modern Western counterpart tends to do. I read that this week and it broke my heart. What? What have we been focusing on then? Entertainment? What have we been doing if we haven't been focusing on intimate worship? If we haven't been focusing on sharing and learning the scripture? What are we doing? What do we think this is about? Glitz and glamour? Making a big splash? Persuading people that we're relevant? If it's not about him, I'm not interested. Deep connection, you know, just five weeks after our twins had been born, this is five years ago now, I say this to my shame, I went to America for a week. I left Amy with four children, two of them under five weeks old, the other two under five years old, and I went on a jolly with some mates, and... um, and while I was away, our t- our, one of our twins, Eden, got really poorly. And she was very poorly. And as she, uh, she couldn't keep any milk down, and she became increasingly dehydrated. They took her into hospital, but they couldn't diagnose anything. And honestly, it was difficult to get them to believe that anything was seriously going wrong. We, we, Amy fought and fought, and, and they eventually discharged uh, Eden, but she still wasn't well. And I got back and I saw her and I was shocked by the difference in how she was between when I left and when I got back. And we went to the doctor, the GP, and and we fed her and she vomited all of her milk up immediately and looked really sick. And the doctor said, look, you just need to take her to A&E. And I rushed off. I dropped Amy home and me and Eden went straight to the A&E, Chelsea and Westminster. And she was so poorly. 
And I was there in the, and, and this wonderful nurse came. And they took us back to this room, and I saw this. I don't know if you know Charlie Mackesy, but he, a wonderful Christian artist. And uh, one of his paintings was on this wall in this room that they took us into. And I just thought, oh, God's with us. And this lady put this line into her arm, and they just started to give her fluids. And she basically almost collapsed in that moment. And they took us into recess, into crash. And there I was, and at the other side of the room, uh, there was a, a somebody being resuscitated. It was such a... A shocking moment in my life, and you know, God was with us. And by God's grace, she, uh, she, just life started to come into her, her again, and she revived, and and she was fine. It was a, a bit of a journey. She had an operation. She was fixed. It was uh, a great thing. But what was amazing about it was in that moment and through that time, we were just covered in this deep community, this connection. You know, people calling us. We had people praying for us, emailing us, saying they're praying for us from different corners of the world. People whose names we'd never heard. We didn't know them, but they were just, people gathered around and sent us meals. It just, all of it, it was incredible. In that moment, we realized this thing we're a part of, this thing called church is a miracle. It's not normal. It's not ordinary. We take it for granted, but it's deep and it's real. And we need it. Deep connection. What if I was to take it a step further? What if I was, for the sake of argument, in financial difficulty, and one of you said, well, because you're in financial difficulty, I, I've got something, I've got something I could give you, and you liquidated an asset. You sold a home or a field or whatever it is you owned to pay off my debt. That was what was happening in this early church community. It says all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give, anyone, to give to anyone who had need. Anyone who had need. And we see quite quickly in the story of church history, it went beyond the boundaries of the Christian community. So not just deep connection, not just total devotion, but we see heartfelt compassion. And it was rare but not unprecedented. Where did it come from? It came from this deep, Sense of God's presence among them. One scholar said this pooling of property could be maintained voluntarily only when their sense of spiritual unity was exceptionally active. As soon as the flame began to burn a little lower, the attempt to maintain the communal life was beset with serious difficulties. Listen to this. As soon as one member of the community failed to forgive another, do you hear that? Unity was wounded. I just want to say this now, I didn't plan to say this. If you hold a grudge against anybody else in this community, forgive it today. Today. Because if you do not, you are limiting the power of the Holy Spirit in this community and in this city. If you hold a grudge against anybody, anybody in your life, address it today. If you don't, you are limiting the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and in their life. We don't have time to hold grudges. We want to see the church on fire, the city alive. We're not going to get there by humdrum Christian devotion. This people had a mindset of, we not me. Oh, if I've got extra and you don't have some, it's yours. And I want to say that many of you are leading the way in this way. I've seen, we hear every week in our staff prayers, profound stories of generosity from this community. Some of them from our staff team, many of them from outside our staff team. You guys, you guys. 
Now, you guys watching at home are sharing life, sharing resource with each other in the most compelling and powerful way. Some of you have changed careers because you sense God call leading you into a life of sharing. There are people in this community, when their names are mentioned in our staff prayer, we all roll our eyes. Because we, we know what's coming. A story of outrageous, radical generosity. People, people in this room right now, you're among them. Some of your children are among them. It's incredible. I want to honor you. I want to honor you today. What was the result of total devotion, deep connection, heartfelt compassion in this church? Listen, we're here today talking about it, aren't we? And that's because something of such profound beauty took place in these days that it shook the world. And it wasn't big. It wasn't spectacular in the way that the world looks at spectacular events. It was small. It was a small community. But it was profound and it was deep and it was rich. It was beautiful. This group of disciples allowed God to turn their lives upside down. And because they allowed him to do that, because they were all in, he used them to turn the world upside down. It wasn't big. I believe the church has gone astray. I believe as as the church in these days, we have focused much too much on the spectacular. And we have missed the simple. We've become obsessed with big events, big conferences, big splashes. So much so that we've missed the main and the plain of devotion of connection, of compassion. And I'm here today to call the church and anyone who is listening back to the simple. If we will focus on the simple, what we see here is that God will do the spectacular. God will do it. Let's leave it to him, shall we? Everyone was filled, verse 43, with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. He can do it. He did it then, he can do it again. Now you might say, well, we don't want to become insular. We don't want to live inward lives. If we focus on worship and, and, and devotion and connection and compassion, there's a danger. We we'll, won't do mission. We won't get out there into the world. Actually, we see the reverse is true. The reverse is true. Where the church focuses on mission to the exception and exclusion of worship, the church runs out of energy. It becomes a a social action club, not the church of Jesus Christ. You might say we're being idealistic. Maybe. I hope so. Why else are we here if not to live by profound ideals? But I'd rather shoot for the moon, shoot for the kingdom, and miss it than wallow around in the shallows of cynical discipleship. Saying that nothing is possible and aiming for nothing for God. I truly believe that there's no limit to what God can do among us. Among a group of people who've captured and recaptured a vision for Jesus. Who believe in the possibility of a renewal for the church and life for the city. Do you believe that? 
Theologian and missionary Leslie Newbegin put it this way. I've come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That people should come to believe that the power, which is the last word in human affairs, is represented by a man hanging on a cross. In other words, how does the church make a difference? How could that be possible? He says this. I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, in other words, the only explanation of the gospel, is a congregation of men and women who believe and live by it. That's the strategy. A congregation of men and women who live and believe by it. Do you believe it? Do you believe that a man was crucified for your sins, raised for your justification, that the Holy Spirit, once that man was ascended from death to life into the presence of God, the Holy Spirit was poured out, that you might know and live in the presence of God, that God is a God of love, that his love is eternal and unending and undying, and that the message is to be preached to every living thing. Do you believe that message? And are you willing to stake your life on that message, whatever it takes, whatever it costs? Because if you are, there is no limit to what God might do through your life. Amen.